It's Left of Baseball with Adrian Burgos, Craig Calcaterra, Lincoln Mitchell, and Tova Wang. Welcome back to Left of Baseball. This is Lincoln Mitchell. I'm here with Craig Calcaterra. Tova Wang and Adrian Burgos Jr. are out on assignment. We have a very special guest today, Art Agnos. Art Agnos served in the California State Assembly for five terms before being elected mayor of San Francisco in a landslide runoff victory in 1987. He served as mayor of San Francisco from 1988 to 1991, where he was really in the middle of a number of very important baseball-related issues that confront that don't confront every mayor. One was the ongoing struggle to find a permanent home for, for the Giants in San Francisco. And the second was that when Art Agnes was mayor, the Giants made it to the World Series for the first time in 27 years, only their second time in uh, since moving to San Francisco. And just before Game 3, the first game at Candlestick Park since that... Uh, Game 7 of the 1962 World Series, an earthquake hit. So, Art, we want to talk to you about baseball and San Francisco and, and being a mayor, but I want to start with you how we start with all of our guests, uh, which is tell us about your baseball journey. There's a, lot, there's a lot to talk about when I talk about what baseball meant in my life. Uh, not only was it a recreational opportunity for me, like it is for many, many young, young boys and girls these days, uh, but for me, it was part of my assimilation to the culture of our country and our community in Massachusetts, where my immigrant Greek parents uh, first came um, and got off the boat um, after Ellis Island. And uh, I grew up in a very traditional, loving, but very traditional immigrant family where work was the most important thing uh, for the family not recreational activities. So when I tried to play Sandlot baseball at the age of 10 and 11, uh, my family said, what is this baseball? What is this baseball? We've got to work. We've got to make money. And, and so my parents, for example, never saw me play baseball um, through Sandlots, through high school, and even college. Um, but I didn't expect that because I wasn't raised that way. What I expected was a chance to play this sport with my buddies. Um, and that process was an assimilation that I needed uh, because I got to know them in their homes and a whole different, and was exposed to a whole different um, culture uh, that I needed to know about as I was uh, growing up in this new land. And uh, just one example. Um, this, uh, this is my, my glove. Uh, the only glove that I ever had, I shined shoes with, in my father's shop and it took me about eight or nine months to earn enough tips. Cause my father got the 15 cents for the shine. I got a nickel if the guy gave us a couple of dimes and said, keep the change. And so it took about eight or nine months to save up, to get my Warren hacker pitcher's glove. Cause I was going to be a pitcher. And uh, I've taken care of it now for approximately 70 years because it's the only glove I'm ever going to have. And it means that much to me. So baseball was pretty important to me in those ways um, uh, as I was growing up and then continued on in high school and uh, college and ultimately a very brief tryout. Um, with the Boston Red Sox in Fenway Park. Um, didn't make it because they had this rookie named Carl Yastrzemski, and that <laughs> sort of uh, was ahead of me in the 
priority. So I'm sure it was all politics, though. <laughs> you know, I never thought of it that way, but it could have been. Could have been. <laughs> have you discussed this with Mike Yastrzemski, Carl's grandson? But dying to meet him, as you know, he's out here in San Francisco, and he's done a terrific job uh, coming from the Baltimore Orioles to to play with us and contributed so much, especially in this year's sensational um, winning team. Uh, but I haven't got a chance to meet him, but I will uh, hopefully uh, this year, maybe at spring training. I hope he gets re-signed. Did you, did you, when you were growing up, in addition to the, just the fun of playing and the assimilation uh, aspects of it that you mentioned, uh, did you follow professional baseball? Did you follow Major League Baseball? Were you a Red Sox fan? Or oh, anything? yeah. I was a Red Sox fan all the way. Lived and died with the Red Sox. And Ted Williams was my hero. Uh, you know, in those days, you were either a Joe DiMaggio guy or a Ted Williams guy. And I was a Ted Williams guy. And uh, so I followed him avidly every day when I went down to my father's shop to work in the shoe shine. Did your preference for Ted Williams over Joe DiMaggio ever become an if- issue in San Francisco politics? Yeah, I was going to ask about that, actually. I can't imagine that was helpful. Did John Molinari know about this? I never, I never mentioned it. I never mentioned it. But I did meet Joe DiMaggio a couple of times. But the most impressive time that I met him was during the earthquake. You know, he lived in the marina, which was the, the most heavily damaged, but not the only neighborhood damaged in the earthquake. And he had a, a home there. Um, and so nobody could go in after the earthquake because we cordoned it off with the... Uh, uh, with the with the with the police and the army to protect it, uh, uh, and so he was in a large assembly area by the high school, Marina Junior High School, um, waiting in line for permission to go back to his house with an escort in order to find his valuables. And what he was looking for was a lot of memorabilia that he had in there and and, and other things of value like that. So he was sort of in the middle of a line of about three or 400 people. I'm walking along doing inspections and I see him there. And I said, my God, that's Joe DiMaggio. So I went up to him and said, uh, excuse me, Mr. DiMaggio, um, uh, uh, you know, you could go up to the front of the line. And he looked at me and he said, hello, Mr. Mayor, uh, thank you, but uh, I don't want any special favors. He says, I'm going to wait my turn just like everybody else in this line. I said, well, let me ask you, are you over 65? And he says, smiled, chuckled, and said, quite a bit. And I said, well, anybody over 65 goes to the head of the line. And he said, and if that's the case for everybody, I'll do it. I said, it sure is. So he did. And that's the kind of guy he was. Uh, And I was thrilled to be able to escort Joe DiMaggio to the head of the line. Never told him how I felt about Ted Williams. (laughs) (laughs) But now... The there was a minor league ball team in Springfield at least part of that time, right? There was a minor league ball team in Springfield at least part of that time, right? Yeah, you yeah absolutely. And when I was growing up, uh, I had the privilege of shining Philippe Alou's, uh shoes because my father's shoe shine stand and he sold cigars, cigarettes, and clean men's hats. It's one of the things that Greek small businesses that Greek immigrants would do. Diners and hat cleaning stores. And my father was in the hat cleaning shoe shine biz. Anyway, we were close to um, uh, where the, uh, the minor league park was, Pension Park it was called. And so Philippe Lou was going came through as a 
up and coming ball player and he would come in and get his shoes shined. I would shine his shoes. I didn't know quite who he was, except that he was a ball player. And uh, I always, he loved to hear me tell this story when uh, I was mayor and afterwards um, when uh, he, he was manager of the Giants, because I would tell everybody very loudly what a great tipper he was to me when I was 12 or 13 years old. And he'd get this big smile and sort of puff up when I when, when I would tell that story. So, so moving moving forward, you you end up in San Francisco, and uh, I assume gradually become a Giants fan. How does that happen? No, because uh, Springfield, as we were just saying, Springfield was a Triple A uh, farm club for the New York Giants. So uh, a lot of their stars, Jose Pagan. Um, and others would come through Springfield, which was kind of the final stop before the major leagues as a triple-A club in the old International League in those days. And, and so um, uh, uh, I, I just grew up a Giants fan, not a Braves fan, in the National League. Uh, as you know, the Braves were in Boston at that time. And, um, uh, but because of the proximity to Giants players and uh, their AAA club, I became a New York Giants fan. It's the only thing that I root for in New York. (laughs) (laughs) We got a lot of Greek diners here, Art. (laughs) That's true. And I love every one of them because those guys, when I was running for uh, the job of mayor in 1987, I couldn't raise a lot of money in San Francisco because I was not part of the establishment and they had their own candidate. So I had to go outside of the city to raise enough money to be competitive in that uh, mayor's race. And the way I did it um, uh, was to go to different cities and reach out to the Greek community in those cities, most of whom were guys we used to call the aprons uh, <laughs> because they all ran diners. And, and those guys came through for me with Checks from two hundred and fifty to five hundred dollars, which was the max, and uh, knowing, knowing they'd never get to see me in San Francisco as mayor, but they were proud of me as a Greek American being in a position of high visibility and importance uh, in government, at least. So I saw a lot of diners in uh, in uh, uh, New York, uh, Boston. Uh, where else? Washington, D.C., um, Chicago, St. Louis, San Diego, Phoenix, Arizona, uh, Sacramento, California, uh, Portland, Oregon, Seattle, Washington. So that's where I got my money to be competitive. And it was enough for me to be successful as well. So when when you became mayor in 1988, you ran on a, a very progressive platform. You know, San Francisco has this reputation for being this very left of center cities. We rarely elect uh, really meaningfully progressive mayors, but you came in with a progressive platform. And your first couple, by the end of your second year there, you are uh, focusing a lot of attention on the effort to keep the Giants. Oh, and, absolutely. And tell us a little bit about that. Well, um, Mayor Feinstein, who I succeeded um, in 1988, ha- was not really. Um, I don't know what the right word was not really passionate, I guess, uh, about um, baseball. And uh, she had been throughout the last part of her successful 
and worthy term had been pressured a great deal by sports fans and the Giants, of course, to uh, get a new site because candlesticks simply didn't work for attendance, for attracting good ball players, and a, a whole constellation of issues. And so there was a strong pressure on her to find and create a new ballpark in, in the city. Um, she finally, as she was uh, finishing her last year of her last term, um, put a measure on the ballot uh, for a place at 7th and Townsend, which was a, frankly, a lousy site. The center field view would have been of a large elevated freeway. And that was it. And the trains and a variety of things like that. Nothing spectacular like we see today at uh, Oracle Park with, uh, I think, one of the most spectacular venues in all of Major League Baseball. So um, <clears throat> when she left, um, without having been successful in that particular endeavor, it fell to me. But when she put on the ballot, which was necessary in order to create it, uh, a, for a new ballpark, uh, I opposed the uh, t bad location that she had picked going out the door. And so uh, in order to make sure Bob Lurie, uh, who was the owner then, understood why I was opposing it, uh, I called and said, look, Mr. Lurie, I think that's a terrible location. The Giants deserve better. And if I'm elected uh, mayor, I intend to find you a spectacular site because I'm a Giants fan. And then I told him to his uh, delight, my story, uh, shining Philippe Lou's shoes and being a Giants fan instead of a Braves fan when I was a kid. So uh, he said, thanks for the call, kid. Let me know when you win, if you do. And that was it. Fast forward about, uh, well, maybe five or six months, maybe more, longer, I win. And the first call I made, and Bob is a good friend today, and he, and he never forgets it, the first call I made as the, um, what do they call it, Lincoln, the uh, mayor-elect, um, uh, was to him and said, Mr. Lurie, as soon as I'm sworn in, we're going to find and start working on that ballpark. So I was, uh, that was a high priority for me. And, and I assembled um, a, a planning team when I became mayor and could direct uh, the planning department and and those kinds of offices, the real estate department. I want to know every location in this city that has ever been considered for a ballpark. My first choice was where the San Francisco Seals had played historically in the middle of the city, but it turned out that was too small for a major league ballpark, but it was a great venue, very intimate. And I wanted to create something like that um, for the major league ballpark that I was going to make sure happened. Um, and, and in the course of doing that, we went out to see Camden Yards. We visited Fenway and also I think, uh, um, Wrigley, not Wrigley, uh, yeah, Wrigley Field uh, in Chicago. What was the, uh, at that time, I, I, I know what came later, but, uh, with the 89 thing, but in 87, when you're first, or in 88, when you're first talking with Lori, what was the talk about financing? It's become such a huge issue now, <laughs> but is. at the time it was just assumed and, in most cities that and what were the, the politics, city was going to put the bill. And, and what were the politics of that as a progressive guy who'd come in with this left of center coalition electing you? Well, 
I supported then and still do municipal financing for uh, these kinds of facilities. And the reason I did, and it was not an issue when I was mayor and we were pursuing, we're on a track to build a new civic or city uh, ballpark like we have. Um, it, 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 uh, it, it, was, it was not an issue as to uh, the city putting money into it uh, because that's how Candlestick had been built. And I happened to, as a liberal, progressive, whatever you want to call me politically, I believe that putting city money into it help keep the cost down so that the ticket prices, the food prices, and everything else would be affordable um, to, to, the, to the middle class and low-income folks who, should, who usually enjoy ball games. So um, uh, building on that, I, I had no trouble with it, still don't. I disagree with those who say they ought to be um, financed by uh, the owners themselves because, as I said, It'll, if you if the city puts in money, we can play a role in keeping prices down. And that's what we did at Candlestick. For example, anytime the 49ers, who also shared Candlestick with the Giants, wanted to raise prices, either team, they had to come through me to raise the price of, of a ticket, a hot dog, or anything else. And that was because we had participated in the financing of the ballpark. Today, you go to Oracle Park, as great a team, as great a management, as great a facility, it's the most expensive place to go to. And if someone goes with a couple of kids, they're going to walk away with spending a couple of hundred dollars on food and parking and all the other things. I took my two kids there a couple of years ago, and we had a wonderful time, and they thought it was the best park they'd ever been to, and I left broke. Here's a couple ways to save money at Oracle Park. First of all, don't spend money on parking. Take the uh, Muni Metro. That's the first thing. And the second thing is there is free valet parking for your bicycle. I ride my bike from, from the inner Richmond, and I park it for free, and then they give it me after the game. I want to hear you say that when you're 84, taking two <laughs> six-year-olds to the ball game. The the one thing that I noticed, you know, following the Braves example down in Atlanta when they moved from Atlanta to Cobb County, they they had a publicly a new publicly funded stadium, and uh, and I think the the rhetoric at the time was just like what you were saying is if the public is involved, we can we can make it a public good as opposed to just a private good and all that. But in recent projects, they've just rolled over, like the, the county governments and the, the city governments have just rolled over and kind of let the teams do whatever they want with them. And was that a sense that you wouldn't have worried about that in 1987? Not while I was mayor. <laughs> I wonder if I could ask a related question, which is you mentioned Bob Lurie. Uh, and, and Bob was, in my view, very much a different era of ownership, right? For those of you who don't know, Bob was a guy who had deep roots in San Francisco. He owned the whole team. I mean, it was, there was not a group. It was one person. He, he wasn't, it, the total purchase cost him eight and a half million dollars, a lot of money then, but it's not comparable to today. And, and he was somebody who came, you know, who was a major philanthropic family in the city. Uh, and, and today the giants just, since we're talking about this team, but this is not atypical are owned by, uh, how to say this, a, a group of, of a very a corporation, including some very nasty, evil Republicans. And, and I want to play in English. And I wonder how, 
how that dynamic was different would be different today when negotiating with someone like, I don't know, Charles Johnson on the politics of some of this as opposed to someone like Lurie. Well, Bob Lurie is what I call a patriarch of San Francisco because of what you just said. Uh, he comes, <clears throat> pardon me, he comes from a family tradition of philanthropy and engagement with our with our city in every facet. And, and, and he certainly enhanced that family tradition. Um, and, and he didn't want to lose money, but he didn't want to, it was not his priority. What was his priority was uh, a team that fit the culture and the identity of San Francisco. And I think that uh, the years that he owned the team, it reflected that. He left behind when he sold the team, he left behind some people who were imbued with that uh, culture, with that uh, philosophy, like Larry Bear, for example, who started under Bob, but continued under Peter McGowan and the um, and the part owners who followed him. And many of that, uh, enga- uh, of that investment team that uh, joined uh, uh, Peter McGowan also were traditional San Franciscans uh, who understood the uh, kind of uh, uh, the kind of ownership that that Bob Lurie was, so they continued a lot of his practices. But over the years, as more investors came in, it's gotten a little bit more corporate. And as you said, um, even a uh, Republican uh, is uh, very active in that. But as I understand it, he doesn't really engage um, in the San Francisco direct management the way Bob did as an owner. No, no, he doesn't at all. Um, it, it's just so it's an idea of, you know, is, is a sports team a civic good or is it just a private business? I think that's something that's really changed in the last 20, 25 years. I know. And you guys probably had a better handle on that. I haven't really uh, thought about what it means, except in our case here in San Francisco, um, uh, I gave a, a brief, a few brief comments uh, when when Bob was uh, put on the Wall of Fame at the ballpark uh, as one of the only two non-ball players to go up there. Peter McGowan being the other, um, and and uh, I don't think San Francisco. I said at the time, San Francisco doesn't need a baseball team or a football team to be a great city or a famous city. It already is and always will be. We just have too much going for us. But in the case of the Giants, for example, um, they share the same civic values that we do as a city. And they, on the field, not just at uh, ceremonial civic events, but on the field, they'll come out there wearing gay pride colors on their uniforms. Think about that. Uh, Buster Posey wearing gay pride colors on his uniform or his hat. And what that says when he goes to a city elsewhere. And, and, and that's what the Giants have added to our city, a shared value system that promotes what we think is important in our city for the people who live in it. And I think that is, I'm not sure we see that in other cities. I'm not that close to it. I was, I was about ready to say, I, I, 
you know, I, I cover every team basically. And I really don't think that there is maybe in New York to some extent, but not with everybody with the Yankees, but certainly with the giants, there seems to have been in the last 20 years or so, a, a greater sort of connection between players, most of whom aren't even from the area, of course, uh, but still sort of make a connection to the city. And do, you, do you think that comes from just them being there? Do you think that comes from ownership on down? Uh, or what do you think, what do you attribute that to? Because I think it's a very real thing. Well, I, to all of the above. I think, as I was saying in my earlier comments, um, I think that the Giants share the ownership and the management shares the values of the city that they are, uh, that they reside in, so to speak. And, and so, um, and I think they, there's a synergy between the team and the city that reflects the kind of values that, as I said before, we, we, we speak to and we promote. Um, and so uh, they, uh, and it's not just in civil rights or that, for example, the Giants now are developing a major multi-billion dollar development in their parking lot um, that will include, in, in order to increase their revenues without increasing prices and that kind of thing, that's their, they're looking to the future. And they're, the biggest development going on in San Francisco today is being uh, promoted and sponsored by the Giants. Just one piece of that to show you what I'm talking about. They're going to build approximately 2,000 units of housing. They voluntarily, when we were talking to them about what the city needs in doing this development, are adding 40% of those 2,000 units to be affordable housing for low-income and middle-income people. And by the way, in San Francisco, you need about $300,000 to buy a house, according to all of the latest statistics. HUD says you are low-income if you make $90,000 a year as a single person and $180,000, $120,000 a year, you're low income for a family of four in this city. So we are pushing very hard for affordable housing and the giants of all the developers in this city for the last 30 years are adding the most affordable housing for middle-class and low-income people in their fancy downtown development where only the high market rate condos usually go. And on top of that, 40%, they're going to have about two dozen for recently emancipated foster youth uh, who have no place to go when they come out of the foster program at 18 years of age, now 21, I guess. They're going to have units in this high-end place for them, along with all the others. Show me a baseball team or a management that is doing that anywhere in this country or the world today. That's the kind of, I think, synergy between the values of this team, which has to make money, we respect that, and they have to promote winning teams, but they also have learned and uh, uh, engaged in what we need to do to keep this city the kind of city we want it to be. I find that fascinating. I think there's a cultural aspect to this as well, where players like Tim Lincecum and Sergio Romo, I always point to those two, would have had very different careers 
and, and would have been seen very differently playing in other cities. I mean, Sergio Romo wearing that famous, I only look illegal. And Tim Lincecum, who was, you know, basically a pot smoking hippie who won two Cy Young Awards. And the Giants kind of embraced that, whereas in other cities, that would have been a more complicated piece of their legacy. I wonder how, and I guess we'll never really know, how they've wrestled with the conservatism that we know permeates baseball and baseball players, right? We know there are anti-vaxxers on the Giants. We know there are MAGA guys on the Giants, but we don't, they're smart enough not to talk about it. Do you think that that is something that attracts more players or is it something that would, you know, makes a player shy away from wanting to be on the Giants or has, you know, makes no difference? Good question. Good question. Um, I, I'm sorry. I can't give you a top of my head answer. That's a, that's a deep question. I have to think about that a little bit more. I mean, I assume uh, it has more to do with how much they're getting paid. <laughs> that's a part of it. <laughs> I think there were some conservative players. I'm, yeah. I'm thinking, I can't pull them off. The, who, well, Will Clark, for one, was very, very conservative player. Uh, but, that was a long time ago. But. Good question. Good, good. That's a good. Um, but I asked Will Clark about that. Oh, he did? I did when I met with him. And he. I would say, Craig, he dodged the question. You know, I said... This is a very left of center town. I know that's probably not your politics. And he said, well, you know, we didn't talk about politics much. I mean, that was kind of where he left it. So I think it is. I mean, I like to think that's one of the reasons that Steve Garvey never signed with the Giants. He was a bad right wing guy and he would have been in Will Clark's way. And Will Clark was a much better player. But, uh, you know, we don't know. But I suspect it is there. Also, it's a higher tax rate. It's a higher cost of living. And not everybody, I mean, to, to you and me and, and, and others maybe listening, the idea of living in San Francisco, if you could afford it, is very appealing, but others would rather go where their money goes even further. And then Jeffrey Leonard would have just had to beat two people up if uh, if Steve Garvey was there. That you know, that'd be a different thing altogether. Like, are there current players you can think of where I mean the politics of both the team and the city would have because there I mean, you know, you you know of their super conservative guys on that team right now, right? It hasn't stopped them from winning, I can tell you. Well, I think there are super conservative guys on the team. I, I don't. I think that Buster Posey is somebody. I mean, I know that Buster Posey's politics. I know his religion, right? Johnny Lamaster, who was um, maybe the worst player ever to have a real major league career of more than a few years, but it was just a terrible player, um, was was relentlessly booed in San Francisco when he played. And one of the reasons was he had made some comments. I can't prove this. I've read. I've not found the primary source data, but I've read a lot of secondary source data that he made anti-gay comments. For those of you who don't remember the history, LeMaster's career for the Giants lasted from 1976 to about 1984. Not a great time to make anti-gay comments in San Francisco. But people didn't, and that was apparently, one, again, I haven't, haven't found the primary source document, but that was a reason why people booed him. But I suspect this is, comes up a lot. You know, if you're a, if you're, I mean, on the other hand, Aubrey Huff, who might be, on the short list for the non-Kurt Schilling category of worst right-wing former ball players, had a great season with the Giants and seemed to like playing with the Giants and was a World Series hero. I mean, that bunt was one of the most important bunts in Giants history. Lincoln, Lincoln, he never talked. He never said a word while That's he right. was playing. It was only after he retired and left and was living in uh, another part of the country that he started to, through social media, make his political views, no. And I think the Giants are smart enough that they tell their players, if those are your views, that's fine, but you're not going to help you to talk about it here. And the appeal of 
They're going to pay. The Giants have money. They pay well. Uh, there is that they've won more World Series this century than a lot of teams. They're they're around the playoffs a lot. There's a lot to like about playing for the Giants. They've had veteran, very well respected managers for most of you know the last thirty years too, and that's another thing that you walk in the door, Dusty Baker or Bruce Bochy or somebody's going to tell you how it is. That's right, especially especially those two guys. Yeah, and not just them. I mean, you have a guy, the, the broadcast team has been there for a long time and is an institution in the city, and they know how it is. So I think they've done a very, very good job of navigating a complicated environment. Yeah, and, 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 the, and the Giants, as I said earlier, uh, engage. They, they, they just don't play baseball. They, they get engaged. I gave you a couple examples uh, with the community. So uh, with their ballplayers, as well as their management, like Larry's all over the place, Larry Bear and uh, some of the others uh, in the management team, um, and also uh, the, the the ownership, and and so even the broadcasters. I mean, the most, some of the most popular people here are are broadcasters, um, and and so they're always out there in the community. And not only are they contributing their celebrity but they are receiving from the audience that is the San Francisco citizenry uh, those messages that tell them uh, something maybe they hadn't experienced earlier in their lives or wherever they were prior to coming to San Francisco. So what I'm saying is the process um, helps them learn about these issues that maybe they didn't learn so much about in uh, Topeka. I I don't recall exactly, but... um and maybe you already touched on this, but what was the atmosphere like last summer during George Floyd, Black Lives Matter, and, and the social justice things ha- process happening at that time? The, uh, on the part of the baseball team? Yeah, what was the, I mean, if you know the reaction, I mean, and also, just also pertaining to last year since, I, so my day job is I do voting rights, um, what kind of participation they had in, in um promoting voter turnout and all that, if you know, or what has historically the club's um, role been, if any, in trying to sort of promote civic engagement? Is that another piece of the, the community involvement? Absolutely. And I and I, I don't remember the, any of the specifics, but I remember there were certain events that were promoted uh, by the management team and in and around the ballpark, uh, meaning around the city, they supported various um, uh things that were done, events that were held. And I think they also had some material at the ballpark, but I'm sorry, I can't be more specific. I mean, has the city and the, the club and I mean, again, worked together on these kinds of things, on these the always, kind of community always. engagement that you're talking about? And I mean, how, how does that partnership work? Well, when I was in office, they'd, they'd call me directly because I was a fan. I was uh, working with the management and Larry Bear and, uh, uh, his team is very smart, very active, and very authentic in staying in touch, not only with the mayor, but the other electeds, so that they know what they're thinking and 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 the electeds know what the Giants are thinking about these issues and how they're approaching them, whether they are literally baseball issues or social issues that are in front of us at a particular time. And, and all of this occurs in the context of a team that, you know, 30 or 30-ish years ago in 1989, when you were mayor, we're talking about elections and voting, one thing for which they could not get the vote out, out for which they could not get the vote, was to get a new ballpark. 
twice they tried to do that. You were for it once, against it once, and then for a different initiative in 89, and they failed. And and that's that's an important part of the story, but I'm also interested from your perspective how how that's how that fits into this broader story and also again as a progressive mayor trying to hold together an odd pro ballpark coalition and then of course the timing with the earthquake that that was a very fraught time in San Francisco really much more I think than people realize now who maybe who weren't there or don't remember it yeah a uh, big question um, first of all I opposed the first presentation the first uh, proposal by Mayor Feinstein because it was a schlocky ballpark. What and it and and the uh, and the Giants deserved and were worth a hell of a lot more than what that mess was. It was just a throwaway to get it off the agenda. Uh, my proposal for the where it is today, um, it was <laughs> was sensational. <laughs> it was even though it was my idea. <laughs> so um, and the way I did it frankly, was to call together the, the best uh, and smartest people in our city. And I said, show me all the sites that have been considered and anything you think works for a ballpark. And it was Dean Macris um, who took me to the corner of uh, King and Third Street and said, this is the spot where I think would work. I said, my God, the water's right there. It's a, you know, a football field away. He says, that's just it. They'll hit them into the water. and um, and, and this will become a bigger than Camden Yards in terms of its uniqueness because they'll be looking out at the bay and everything you see today. And so I bought it and took Bob Lurie there and he bought into it and we started and put it on the ballot because we were trying to do it faster um, than, uh, than the, uh, all the processes, planning processes would allow for environmental review and all that. So we were trying to skip some phases. And uh, we were looking great in, in 1989 because we were winning. Uh, we were in the World Series. And along comes the earthquake. And that was about, I can't remember, but maybe 10 days prior to the election. And the people who were opposed to putting a ballpark there um, even though it was an abandoned part of San Francisco at that time with old warehouses that weren't being used and stuff like that, simply um, used the earthquake as a reason not to put a ballpark. They said, we need to concentrate on rebuilding the city, even though I had money from the federal government to pay for a third of that ballpark because the speaker of the house at that time, Tom Foley, in Seattle had put one of those little goodies into the budget that said any city that's trying to build a ballpark can get this money. And there were only two, Seattle, and then we came along. So I had $50 million out of a total price tag of 150 coming in the form of a federal reimbursement. But the opponents said that money should be used for rebuilding the marina or whatever else we needed. And there was a lot in that time, but it couldn't because it was just for that purpose. Anyway, people were confused with all of the anxieties and uh, uh, of recovery from that earthquake. And we lost the narrow election, broke my heart because that would have enabled us to build what we have today because it was the same design. The only thing we didn't have was the Coke bottle. 
and the glow out there in left field. But the rest was exactly what you see. But can you imagine that park um, with us controlling prices and all that? Ah, it would have been truly spectacular. Anyway, uh, it didn't work because of that. And Mayor Willie Brown, to his credit, uh, about six years later, did the totally privately financed thing, which was a breeze. I never, I never let him forget that one either. And, and so um, it, it, uh, it, got, it happened. And they took it literally off the shelf and built it. And I'm glad it's there. I just wish we could have done it a little earlier. In between the failure of the ballot issue, you know, in, in, in the wake of that, how I, I remember the public comments at the time, and I've gone back and I've looked at them for projects that I've worked on and written about. But in your heart of hearts, how close to leaving San Francisco do you think the Giants were to coming? Oh, I think they were going to leave. I think they were going to leave. Bob, Bob had just run out of patience and was losing some of the energy to just keep driving the team in the shape that it was and the wins that it had and all that kind of stuff. And I don't think, um, I think, I think that, I think that it was for real. I believed it. I believed it. So one of the uh, things that we've talked about a bunch on this podcast, or not a bunch, but a little bit, is the situation in Oakland right now. And um, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that in comparison to what you went through in San Francisco with that ballpark and the, the fights for that and the public engagement in that process. Yeah. Um, I, 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 uh, I think Oakland needs a professional team. To, uh, it's always been seen as a poor stepchild or poor step sibling of San Francisco. I think it's a wonderful city. It's getting better all the time. Uh, as a matter of fact, recently when the Warriors wanted to come, the Oakland Warriors uh, wanted to come from, from there to San Francisco, I resisted it. Um, in fact, I opposed their first proposal for an arena that they were going to build. Um, and uh, uh, because I don't think San Francisco needs the Warriors to be here for an identity, as I said earlier about the Giants. Uh, but Oakland does, and uh, they get a lot out of it. And, and so, therefore, I, um, I believe that uh, Oakland ought to have a team. I support it. And uh, uh, Mayor Schaff, who's there, I've told her any way I can help, I'm there. So we're all on the outside, right? But watching what's going on with the city council, it seems like ownership is pretty determined to leave. And it's hard to tell whether they're well, Craig knows more about this than I do. So if you want to weigh in. I, no, I, th I think that they're content to leave if they don't get the exact deal they want. But I also think that a lot of what they've done publicly flirting with Las Vegas and Portland and places has been to try to pressure Oakland. No question about it that they're trying to do that. And frankly, I don't think that's the best strategy. Um, you know, Oakland has a lot of pride. The mayor has a lot of pride in her city and she's not going to be uh, pulled around like that with that kind of a tactic. And I think it's a mistake. I, I think that the, the ownership and the management, even though the ownership comes from a great um, philanthropic family, the current generation is not doing as good a job as the forebearers did. And I think the relationship over there has suffered for it. They have not followed the management style and the 
philosophy of, of the Giants under Bob Lurie, for sure. So, Art, tell us about the World, that, that World Series earthquake. You know, it happened right before Game 3. Unfortunately, the A's were already ahead two games to nothing, which was upsetting. Um, and, and it was, you know, we waited to see what would happen for the rest of the World Series. I was a fan at the time. I wasn't really on the inside. What was the story there? What happened? How, how, do, how, did it get, how do we get back to playing? Yeah, this was a very important, this was a very important game because it was the first time we'd lost two over in Oakland. So we were coming to, to Candlestick to, for the resumption uh, in the third game, which we thought we could win and get start evening the series because uh, we were playing at home, so to speak. And so uh, I was late uh, getting to the ballpark because I was working in City Hall and uh, just pulling into the driveway, into the parking lot. Um, when I felt the, we, my, I was with my family and, uh, we felt the car shake. And, um, <clears throat> I said to my uh, bodyguard in San Francisco, the mayor always has security with them. And I said, did we just have a flat tire? Cause the car shook in that fashion that you get when a flat tire. And she said, no, she said, I think that, uh, we had an earthquake. And I said, well, it wasn't too bad. And we walked in, and the place was rocking. I mean, the ball players were milling around, the fans were, and uh, police cars were driving onto the diamond, etc. And and that was the beginning of a extraordinary period of my life. And what I'm about to tell you is that the ball, of course, the 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 game was suspended, and the question then became for all the media and the media was from all over the world, of course, because it was the world series. When is it going to start? And, uh, the first few days, nobody really pushed, but after a week, uh, I got a call from the commissioner's office to meet him and Bob and Al Rosen, who was the, then the, uh, president, I guess, you know, general manager of, of the giants with Bob. So, uh, we went to his downtown condo, and it was Al Rosen, Bob Lurie, Corey Bush, and uh, who was one of the top staff guys there, and the commissioner. And so he began to say, "Look, we've got the the the, the uh, World Series has been suspended now for whatever it was, ten days or something like that, eight days." And he says, "We've got to get back. We just can't leave it this way." And um, I said, "Well, I said we're still looking." For, for bodies in Oakland where the uh, freeway had collapsed onto a packed uh, traffic pattern. And, and I said, I can't be starting uh, the World Series when we're still looking for victims. And, and I got to make sure the ballpark is ready. We got to have engineers check it to make sure there is no structural damage. And he says to me, well, he said, we got to do it soon. He says, because I'd hate to be uh, the mayor who the only mayor in the history of baseball who uh, didn't complete the World Series. And I said, well, I'm not going to be the only mayor in history who starts it when we're still looking for victims in the rubble and the ballpark is not safe. And he said, well, then, then I will have to. It was a very tense, very tense time. He says, well, then maybe we'll have to move it to San Diego to restart it. And Bob Lurie, who is not a demonstrative guy normally, jumped out of his seat and said, over my goddamn body, 
And the commissioner looked at him and immediately turned to me and said, what are we going to do? <laughs> and I said, I'll let you know as soon as I'm ready. And, I was, and we completed the um, safety survey of the ballpark. And Mayor Wilson, who was the mayor of Oakland, told me there weren't any more uh, rescue missions to be had, and they were ready. So I called the commissioner. I said, we're ready. You start. Uh, and that was the behind-the-scenes way that the ballpark and the World Series resumed um, in, in 1989. Was that known at the time? Was that Did people know about that at the time that that happened? Oh, no. It was uh, uh, as soon as I told him uh, that I was ready and that Mayor Wilson was ready, uh, we had a we had a meeting. We had a public press conference, major press conference, because all that media was still there. And we announced what we were going to do. And everybody applauded him for making a good decision. <laughs>